Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Christine Clare, where I'm at Valley Vineyards in Turner, Oregon. It's June 22nd, 2018. And Christine, will start you with a nice, easy question, uh, which is why wine? Why wine? Why get into wine? Um, well, I haven't made it very far. I actually grew up at the base of this vineyard, so about 100 yards away is where I was born and raised. And so though I, you know, when you're younger and don't have any appreciation for the place and industry and all that Oregon is, I think, you know, it does enter your subconscious. And I was very familiar that um, this hill was an exciting place. And um, when I was about four years old, I actually walked up the gravel driveway um, and the weekend that the tasting room opened, I just saw cars entering the driveway and I followed them up here and I tried to sell um, friendship bracelets to the first tasting room visitors and that was back in 1991. So uh, I kind of joke around with our founder, Jim Bruneau, that I've been doing business here pretty much just as long as he has. <laughs> and, um, and we've always just, you know, remained really neighborly and friendly and he's always very supportive and when I went to Oregon State, I was studying entrepreneurship and um, got exposed um, into wine just really gently through reading Susan Sokol Blosser's book, um, At Home in the Vineyard, and you know, knowing that when I came back and visited my parents here that there was a lot going on at Willamette Valley Vineyards. So I asked for an internship and started working here in marketing, and that got me just exposure to a lot of the different departments of what it takes to run a winery. And from then, it was just, I don't know, it's been in the blood and I can't <laughs> imagine doing anything else and um, I was hooked, so. And you have a history with your own wine, as I recall. You had your own wine label at one point. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so when I started working here, I was a junior in college and I was going to Oregon State and I would work here three days a week and go to school, um, you know, in the alternating days. And um, when I graduated in June 2010, I had no intentions of staying here, like to, to you know, be within a mile of my parents' house, to be in the same zip code. Um, it just didn't seem like that was, you know, the dream for me at the time or, you know, that's not really where my, my, my drive was. And um, I'd studied um, in school entrepreneurship and I'd always kind of run these little businesses growing up. Like I sold friendship bracelets <laughs> and I, you know, was always a top, you know, top salesperson in 4-H and Girl Scouts, anything I did that way. Um, so. What I decided to do was to move down to Southern Oregon into the Rogue Valley and start my own wine brand down there um, through the help of a lot of people down there. But it kind of seemed like a perfect in, um, region at the time uh, because it was four hours away, but still Oregon and still you know, had the same values that I've grown up with as far as agriculture and community. Um, but, you know, it was in a region that's far more in its infancy than the Willamette Valley. So for someone that was 21 years old um, to go down and be given the opportunity I had to actually go, you know, make wine, sell my own wine and be part of the Southern Oregon Winery Association, be part of kind of helping that wine region figure out who they were, was kind of exactly what I was doing in my personal life too. I was trying to figure out what I, who I was and what I wanted to do. And, 
and I just love it down there. Um, my wine brand was called God King Slave, which is pretty unusual for the wine industry. It's probably wouldn't name it that now, <laughs> but but you know, graduating from school, I was um, I didn't have a name in wine. I didn't have land I owned. I had no. Um, I had nothing. Right. I started off with um, with no really idea even of what I wanted to make in wine or do and so I kind of I named my brand after um, kind of more of a mantra or what I wanted to accomplish and that was you know create like a god command like a king and work like a slave and work so hard that you kind of you know someday make it <laughs> and um, and um, down there in southern Oregon that was just a that was just a great community in time I was down there between 2010 and 13 and you came back here, and you mentioned you're, you're here as a you start as a an intern, or, you know, and you mm -hmm. work your way all the way up to to winery director, I believe is the title now. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that that journey. It's pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that journey and, and kind of the steps you've taken and and sort of what you've learned along the way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, anytime you do your own wine brand, I think that you learn a lot because when you're the person that's making payroll and making wine and selling wine and delivering the wine. You know, you just get a crash course in what it takes to do it um, and then can transfer a lot of those skills into just doing it in a bigger scale. Um, but really it was, I wasn't intending to come back and I was loving my time in Southern Oregon and uh, it was it was a call from Jim Bruneau that I got that just asked when I was going to be back up in the area if I was going to come back for a holiday or to visit family. And um, you know, I didn't know what it was about. I thought maybe it was just a check-in. As he's always been a really strong mentor for me, so it wasn't unusual to get a call that was like, "Hey, how are you doing?" Um, but uh, you know, I planned that. I came back and met with him in February 2013, and um, we were up in our um, founders' room. And uh, I, the question that started the conversation was like this: It was, you know, what do you think about um, taking my job? And I sat there and was like, well, what would you do? Because, I mean, Jim is this place. Jim is this brand. He's brought all these people together and made this winery what it is. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I wasn't privy to the conversations that he was starting to develop his succession plan and really wasn't even paying attention, really, of the time and place in the Oregon wine industry we are. We are in this time where the first generation is passing things down, and what an incredible time to be here because we're still working with the first generation founders and pioneers. Um, so that, I mean, just right away, I kind of felt the weight of the conversation and how much of an opportunity that would be. And, and it didn't seem like a decision at all. It seemed like on the drive home, all I was thinking, uh, was thinking about is like, oh, oh my gosh, what's this going to be like doing this process? Um, so I came back to work April 1st, 2013 and started um, started back leading marketing and direct sales and then um, built in um, vineyards and winemaking and now um, all of our business development through our new wineries and we're on a very you know very intentional very deliberate um, slow transition as Jim still has a lot to offer and is very active day-to-day -day in our company um, but unfortunately that can't be the case the long long term and so we do have a succession plan and um, it's quite an honor to work, you know, as closely as I get to him and to hear his story and um, and take this platform of where we are now and you know see where it goes in my 30 to 40 years that I get to lead it 
because uh, I kind of look back and think, um, you know, my wine brand in Southern Oregon means a lot to me, and it would have taken me a long time to get where Jim was, if ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he's done incredible things here, and so this just seems like, I mean, such a platform. So, did he ever talk with you about? It seems like out of the blue, why why he chose you, why you were the one he wanted to take over for him or to do this transition? Um, I mean, in working here, we always had a really strong bond and relationship. And I think a lot of times people that are inspired by entrepreneurship are often magnets to other entrepreneurs, right? And you keep tabs on people that you think are doing, you know, great work and, um, you know, uh, just kind of paving away and so I think that um, we just share that spirit mm -hmm. and I think that um, our connection of actually growing up here means a lot too. Jim is a native Oregonian he was the first native Oregonian to start a winery and um, you know I take that really seriously in how the um, how I treasure this land and the place we have here and so I, I see it as you know I have a responsibility and a duty but take a lot of pride in it you mentioned you had kind of a long slow plan I'm curious and talk, you talked about kind of different areas in which you've worked mm -hmm. um, how did you come to that plan how was that arranged in terms of what you would learn and in what order and, and how you would do it yeah um, you know the plan is probably it's kind of a roadmap of, you know, here's the competencies like right now in our industry to really serve our employee base and to serve our, um, you know, uh, investors. It's kind of weird to say that because being publicly held, it's just such a foreign concept sometimes in wine, um, but that's really important. And so we kind of do it based on skill and competency and kind of put that to a plan. Um, but really truly it's a lot of it is, um, a lot of it is working through experience. Like we're such a different business right now than we even were back in 2013. And um, so sometimes um, we've done this, you know, we've laid it out, but then there's other times that I'm like, man, Jim, keep holding on. <laughs> I just don't know if I'm there yet. <laughs> Cause there's, you know, we're tackling such bigger, you know, big things right now. And it's great to have a partner. And I, um, I have um, no need to um, be that person to kick him out. I want him to stick around as long as he can. So <laughs> if he watches this, I hope he's okay with that. <laughs> Um, speaking of the publicly owned, um, mm -hmm. talk about that. You're the only one in the state. Um, mm -hmm. w that decision being, was made a little while ago. I'm curious about the, why the decision was made and what, how that changes or doesn't change what Willamette Vineyards is. Yeah, yes, it's in our identity. It's part of our origin story and um, really it's an incredible story and it's becoming um, business formation like this is actually becoming quite popular. So really what happened is Jim planted the vineyard back in 1983 with no intention of, um, and no plants for a winery. It was, you know, he wanted to clear his 15 acres, he wanted to plant his Pinot Noir, his Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, and he wanted to be a farmer. And he wanted to sell his crop and, and did. He sold his first vintage um, to Dickie Ruff. And after a year, I don't know if it was, um, you know, if it, it, that was pretty quick, you know, what was going through his mind, but he just decided after that time is, you know, I really didn't want to let go of this fruit. I want it, I want to make it into wine now. And the only way for me to do that is to get others involved that believe that, 
you know, we can do it and that there is an Oregon wine industry um, that's possible here because there, there wasn't a cluster of wineries. There really wasn't, you know, um, any confidence from a public perspective. Um, and so what he did was, you know, he believed in that if he could get enough people, wine enthusiasts, to invest that um, they could do it together. And now we call this crowdfunding, right? And it's very common. And um, But back then, this was so unheard of that it was actually against the law to receive small amounts of investment. We're, t we're talking $2,500 from people. It was against the law for him to, to, to take money this way. You were only allowed so many non-accredited investors. <laughs> And Jim didn't even have friends that qualified as accredited investors. You know, he was uh, 28 years old. Like, you know, I'm 31. I don't know these people either. So, <laughs> and, uh, so instead, you know, he actually went and he changed um, some legislation. He had, you know, his um, schooling and background work was in lobbying. He had been working with the wine, Oregon Wine Growers Association to create their semi-public um, organization working. So. You know, so he has a real understanding of um, the legal structure that way. And so he actually made it possible and then did the first and never to be repeated self underwritten public stock offering and, um, and attracted about 2,000 wine enthusiasts that invested about, about 2000 to $2,500 was their original investment. And um, it was enough to make our first wine and to build our winery facility. And then in 1994, we actually qualified for the NASDAQ. And we're one of the smallest companies on the NASDAQ, probably <laughs> the smallest manufacturing company on the NASDAQ. Um, and there's other wineries that are publicly held. Um, you know, there's Crimson Wine Group, there's Constellation, there's a parent company of Argyle, um, but not in this way. These people are people that are here wine tasting in our tasting room right now. They volunteer on our bottling line. They volunteer doing the topping in the barrel cellar. You know, they volunteer at events and pouring wine. Like these are people that are part of the brand and live the brand in their way. And, and we're up to over 16,000 wine enthusiast owners now. And, you know, we have dreams of more because um, it's such an emotional connection when you own a piece of this winery and a piece of the success. Um, you know, we say it's the only stock you can own where you can drink yourself to a profit. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Um, but there are, you know, there's a lot that comes with being publicly held. You are judged quarterly on earnings. Um, you have to make very smart financial decisions for your investors. Um, we have an accounting team that's significant just to keep up with compliance and auditing. So there's a lot that goes into it and it's, you know, very complex structure. Um, and there's also, you know, quite a bit of costs that we could take on to, to keep our public status about a half million dollars a year. And so that makes us have to, you know, be a little larger in scale as far as what we sell in order to pay and cover those expenses. But in general, it, the, um, the business structures work so well for us because when Jim started his first offering back in 1989, within three years, he was the leading winery in Oregon. And that was because all those people just became his customers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the trade, a lot of independent wine shops, Orville Roth, who this barrel seller is named after, you know, when they became owners, they started really supporting the wine. And now that is seen across the country. Like I just got back from 
um, a trip in Las Vegas and I was working with the distributor and doing a sales meeting and I was like, Are any, is there anyone that's a winery owner in here? And like three hands raised and you know, that's a few states away. So it's really exciting to see. I'm curious if it, it usually when we talk about wineries, especially Oregon wineries, you're talking about usually a singular or maybe a shared vision by one person or maybe a couple or mm. something. I'm curious how that changes um, sort of when you have 16,000 visions in, in <laughs> addition to you and Jim and other mm -hmm. people like that. So I mean, I'm curious how you balance all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, the purpose of the ownership is to be very diversely held. So there's not, you know, majority voices that are really dictating the mission of the company, which is, um, you know, uh, to continue to tell the Oregon story through wine. Like we're very clear in that and people buy into that. So there's not any, um, you know, there's not any exterior force that's um, pressurizing us to do one thing or the other. In fact, I think it's probably stronger and we feel um, that this community funding really helps us serve the community really well. Um, you know, they they care that we are stewards of the land. They care about our environmental practices. They care that we're a state grown and they've helped us kind of create this um, set of standards and expectations and values that we hold. And it's, you know, it's served us very well. I'm curious how you personally approach a job with so many responsibilities as you've had and how you sort of maintain any kind of like work-life balance with all of the things you have to do while also trying to, you know, live away from the winery. Mm. Well, I don't live that far away from the winery. <laughs> <laughs> I live, um, I can get home in, you know, two miles, so it's not that far, but, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that everyone has a different opinion of work-life balance. I tend to like to take on a lot and I like the pace of being challenged and pushed and when I don't feel that is actually when I feel like I'm not doing my best work. So I kind of like the chase. I like, um, um, I love the size of this winery. We have 200 employees, um, you know, 70 of which are out in the vineyards, but there's a lot of people to take care of. So I like that pressure and responsibility. Um, and I've, you know, my husband also works in wine. He works for our distributor. So even when I go home, I get to hear about wine quite a bit. Um, but one of the things I think that helps like in the balance is, um, you know, uh, being a learner. Um, go and learn outside of wine industry and go and learn like whether it's a new hobby or uh, it, you know, some type of adventure in Oregon or just have something that is where you're kind of constantly curious, that's oftentimes how I get refreshed. So when I'm out of the winery here, but I'm, you know, down at the local brewery, like I want to know all about what they're doing. Like, and that is kind of what I need to reset is just some outside perspective and a new, new opportunity to learn. Or something like dancing with the Salem stars, for example. <laughs> yeah. So embarrassing. Oh my God. Yeah. At least you won. Well, yeah, I know I'm really competitive. And so I, um, so my husband sells wine um, in, in the local community. He works for Young's Market Company as the on-premise sales rep. And so he sells wine to the Elsinore Theater. And he had signed me up, not myself. I would never have signed up to do that. And in fact, I asked them when they finally called me and they were like, will you, will you participate in this charity event called Salem Dancing with the Stars? And I go, 
what qualifies me to be a Salem star? You know, I'm kind of confused <laughs> by that. And they were like, it's pretty much just the agreement to embarrass yourself in public. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> um, but then I hadn't really watched the TV show very much. So I had to like get a crash course, thank God, uh, Hulu. And so I could see how it works. I didn't even know the name of the dances. So when I got the Viennese waltz, I thought it was the Vietnamese waltz. And I was like, hi, I don't understand. What's the Asian influence? And it was the most embarrassing thing ever. So. Anyway. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, when you were starting your brand in Southern Oregon, uh, you were involved in the winemaking as well as everything else. I'm curious mm -hmm. how you sort of developed a winemaking style or philosophy. Mm-hmm. Well, everything was done in like barter and trade. Uh, so when I was down there, I didn't have very much um, money. I just graduated college. And in fact, I took um, the excess of um, my student loans and I took selling Apple stock that I had purchased as part of a college course and as part of um, the Apple uh, stock plan and cash those out in order to start. And I started making with four barrels of wine in those four barrels, I mean, I purchased, you know, neutral oak barrels for $25. So this was very minimal um, startup funds. And I wrote a marketing and sales plan for a small winery down there in exchange for, you know, faith on a fruit contract. And I um, was, I, um, made wine in a partner facility that I paid custom crush for, but that there was a winemaker there um, named Rob Fullen that helped with a lot of mentorship and guidance and, um, and also had a winemaking partner um, as well. So there was, a lot of, there was a lot of help in this project. And I think, um, you know, in, even in working here, I just have such an appreciation for very classic, very traditional styles of winemaking, um, you know, with Pinot Noir and the Willamette Valley um, there is uh, a very clear direction what you're trying to do and that sense of place and to showcase you know the vintage and what the time what the earth what everything was doing that year and so it was really just kind of carrying that down to southern Oregon I mean southern Oregon actually has really similar conditions down there as we do up here they are you know, really are growing on the climatic edge for most of those varietals down there. Um, so I was making Syrah and Tempranillo my first year, and I was making wine in 2009, which was a warm vintage, and then in 2010, very challenging vintage. And we didn't pick, um, you know, until late October. Um, so, you know, the season I remember still um, doing quite a bit of work on Thanksgiving that year. And so, you know, I think, but it was just a lot of trial and error, in fact, um, with my with my brand down there, you know, I always thought that I would make varietal wines, kind of like how we do in the William Valley. We make Pinot Noir, we make Chardonnay, mm -hmm. we make Pinot Gris, and um, I tried my Tempranillo. I was like, oh my god, this is never going to be ready. This is like three years it needs to age. It's really tannic. And then tried the Syrah, and I'm like, oh, the Syrah is so beautiful. And so then it was kind of like, well. Maybe I'll just try a little bit of both. And so I ended up making a red blend. <laughs> so, you know, there was, no, there was no intention. There was no plan. It was um, just getting a feel for it and learning and having, doing it all yourself, you know, even going out and doing like the leafing passes or seeing the spray programs on your food or, you know, you think you learn. <laughs> there's no better learn learning opportunity than just actually, you know, being alongside vines, being in the cellar seeing what's going on. 
So how involved are you with the winemaking here then? Yeah, so um, my office is right next to the head winemaker office. And um, so Joe Ibrahim, our head winemaker here, he leads all the day-to-day -day winemaking decisions and team, bottling, everything. So the things that I get to be a part of is blending, which is great. And all the, um, all the work that you know, we need to support production. So um, uh, whether that's planning, you know, uh, planning the quantities of wine we're going to make, the stylistic goals of the wines, what markets they're going to serve, how does the wine look and feel as far as packaging, um, all of that comes up. Um, but probably, you know, just as important is all the vineyards. So, you know, working with our vineyard manager, we farm over 500 acres now. Um, weekly doing vineyard visits, making sure everything is going to hit quality goals and you know what programs the wine's going into is really important, especially this time of year. Mm -hmm. You know, we did a 12 hour vineyard visit on Monday. The reason I'm wearing this jacket is because I have a good sunburn <laughs> to prove it. <laughs> um, but it's important to see, you know, what the conditions are out there, what we're going to have to uh, deal with during harvest. So what makes good wine in your opinion? What makes good wine? Um, a great site mm -hmm. and a timely execution. You know, you never get to go back on your pick decision. Um, you have to be really smart with your cellar hygiene and your cellar uh, procedures. And um, everything's about, there's really short windows of time in wine. In fact, we make wine in Walla Walla and I was just um, with a wine reviewer yesterday showing those wines for the first time. And, you know, he asked, um, you know, so many people got it wrong in this specific vintage up there. You know, what made it right? And I was sitting with our winemaker up there, John, and John was like, you know what, I live there. And so for me, the picking window is within, you know, six to 12 hours. It is not, I need to drive and go check the fruit, then line up a pick decision. So it's like, we're getting exactly what we want. You mentioned earlier some of the changes here even since 2013 when you were there and, and you mentioned also Walla Walla. That's one of the changes is your the Oregon Estate Vineyards. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about that, how that came about and sort of mm -hmm. what, the, what the goals are. Yeah, well um, it was, it's Oregon Estate Vineyards is a, a new division of our company that I co-founded with our founder Jim Bernal. And um, what it is for us is we believe that there's more to the Oregon wine story than just Willamette Valley Pinot Noir you know, we're not naive. We think that there's a lot of amazing things out there. And when you look at Oregon, you know, geographically, size-wise, you could lay, you know, the country of France over it and just, you know, cut along the edges. There's so many microclimates here that we just haven't discovered yet. And that's really our mission. It's very much a mission-driven um, a program and project that we think that there's more microclimates in Oregon to discover and it just takes someone to do the work, right? I mean, um, without, um, you know, without David Lett coming to the Willamette Valley or Bill Fuller coming to the Willamette Valley, we might not be sitting around the table today. Um, same with the pioneers over in Walla Walla, Gary Figgins mm -hmm. and others. So, um, you know, where we started was kind of a conversation that was, you know, if you aren't making wine in, you know, here, in our, at our three estate vineyards, where would you be making it? And um, immediately the, the conversation kind of jumped to Walla Walla. There's, mm -hmm. you know, really exciting things that are going on over there. They have amazing fruit quality. I've always really admired um, their wineries and, um, you know, their commitment to quality and creating a world-class wine region similar to what 
we've been doing over here in the Williamson Valley. And uh, so Jim just encouraged me. He was like, well, why don't you go over there and see what they're up to? And this was around Christmas, 2014. And uh, it was the day after New Year's, so not much time had passed, that I was driving over through the Columbia Gorge just to you know, knock on some doors and learn what people were up to. And it is a desolate time of year to be driving to Walla Walla. It was maybe 20 some degrees over there. And I um, met up with Norma Kibben of Pepper Bridge and um, Amavi, and he's kind of considered the godfather of Walla Walla. And I asked him, I was like, so Norm, you know, if, if you were new coming over to learn about Walla Walla, you know, what should I know? And, and uh, he was like, well, uh, you know, let, let's get in my car. And so we got in his car and it's a 1994 blue Toyota Corolla. And I was like, surely this isn't going to be like, this isn't going to get us around vineyards and Walla Walla. <laughs> I think I'm going to end up pushing this car today. Um, and he tells me now that he has a vineyard truck, but that was just what he was driving that day. Um, but uh, he drove me out to the Oregon side of the Walla Walla Valley and was kind of surprised to be back in Oregon, right? And he takes me up the North Slope that overlooks the whole Walla Walla Valley and there's a 2,700 acre um, property that he purchased with a group of other winery owners, um, Chris and Gary Figgins of Leonetti, mm -hmm. Marty Club of Lake Hole, um, and himself. And uh, they purchased this farmland from the Mormon church. They actually had to do it blindly because the Mormon church wasn't going to sell land that was farmed as wheat to any wine growers. Mm -hmm. and, um, but eventually they got the land and they built in um, water rights and um, a really technologically advanced um, vineyard development. It's just, I mean, it's one of a kind. I've never seen anything like it. And it just immediately, once we were up there, it's rugged. It just has so much um, presence and spirit to it. It's so windy. Um, the terroir and the soil is like, um, there's two different versions. There's the fractured basalt that looks like nothing would grow in it. And then there's this like rock flower, which is called Lus. And um, so we drove around and, and walked around and spent most of the day out there. And, you know, I called Jim, uh, our founder, right away and was like, Jim, we have to be here. And he was like, we, we just started talking about this idea. I was like, no, we need it. Like, what, what can we do? And, um, and Jim, you know, gave it some thought. And um, I came back and then he was like, well, let's go back. Let's go back and look at it. I was like, okay. So on the drive back over to Walla Walla, another four hours in the car, we strategized how we could do it, which was bringing back our roots of our public offering mm -hmm. and offering shares in these new winery projects. So Pamron um, over in Walla Walla on the Oregon side was one of our first. Mm -hmm. um, we have our Elton Winery out in um, Eola Amity Hills. Um, now we have um, a project in the Rocks District of Milton Freewater, so another one on the east side. Um, in an amazing new AVA. Um, and then our latest one, our newest addition, is the Bernoa Estate, which is kind of fun to uh, actually now have a winery that will be you know, in Jim's legacy. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be in the Dundee Hills, um, dedicated to biodynamic farming and, and method champagne while sparkling wine. So, wow, nice. Yeah, so now there's you know, uh, a lot of these um, brands and wineries that are being developed and it's it's hard to keep a track of all the planting and all the planning but really exciting times excellent excellent 
since you're since you have a background in terms of like marketing things like that, I'm curious about a few questions about sort of marketing and sales. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I know direct sales is kind of the new mm-hmm. the, the new the new thing in the wine industry. I'm curious how that's changed even in the time you've been in the wine industry, mm-hmm. sort of the direct sales approach. Yeah, I mean, direct sales isn't, um, uh, now it's so important, it's a survival tactic, right? So back, um, you know, back when Jim started, the three-tier system was the only way. Mm-hmm. You went, you know, to your distributor, to the retailer, to the customer, and that chain of command, you just had to play by those rules. And that system is very antiquated. It was set up after prohibition as a safeguard to consumers. And, um, you know, really more operates um, in that structure now as a controlling mechanism, mm-hmm. right? Well, now with the way that we, you know, interact with consumers, whether it's you know digital, through social media, or through our tasting rooms, we have a personal connection with the people that are enjoying our wine that they never had before. We've had it before. We've actually always had it because of the way that we're funded. So the communities and the customers always been part of this winery. So our direct-to-consumer sales has always been a real um, emphasis here at Willamette Valley Vineyards. But now it's nice to see it's supported by you know the whole industry and um, there's such an amazing tourism and agritourism and ecotourism um, industry that's building up around us because you do need the hoteliers, you need the restaurateurs, you need all of this to create these experiences that people are seeking um, done in an Oregon way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is exciting um, now. It's so competitive and wholesale. I just don't think that you could probably start a new wine project or a new winery you know, without maybe a lot of connections and get a lot of di- distribution or representation. So what is their, you know, what is their option? And that's direct to consumer. Um, and that's what we're heavily investing in. All of these brands I just talked about before are all direct to consumer brands that will have an experience on the vineyard site and have ways that the customer gets to interact with the place, the vineyard, the winemaking. And that's really important to what customers are looking for now. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, um, the shopping experience is so different. Even when you're in the grocery store, you can find all the information yourself through your phone. Um, and uh, people are also, there's a big movement right now as the, as the world is you know, now global. It's borderless, essentially, to really behave very locally and very tribal. And I think that there's a trend in the wine industry of even more local and more supporting you know, your AVA that you prefer or you live in or um, just, you know, your immediate area. We see that a lot with craft brewing. You know, there's a brewery every neighborhood and it becomes the identity for them is the neighborhood. That happens in wine too. So we've done a lot of work to understand, you know, we're usually within the top five by volume for Oregon wineries. And we used to think that we were a national brand. And when we looked up our customer base, our direct-to-consumers, 70% of our wine club is within 70 miles of us. 60% of our winery owners are within 70 miles of us. We are just a very high-performing local brand. And I think that that's what most Oregon wineries are. So what are, you mentioned kind of the, the competition for wholesale, but there's also obviously a huge competition for direct sales because there's mm-hmm. so many wineries now. So what are some of the challenges that you face, even as one of the bigger fish in the state, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to direct sales and when it comes to just sort of uh, getting a foothold in the market? Yeah, I, you know, 
the challenge right now for us as we're trying to do these four winery build outs is construction costs and you know the economy is doing so well and then there's the downsides that there's not enough people to you know do the work on these construction projects especially of you know these sizes and find subs to do the work so you know everything the bids have come in so high so delayed that it's a challenge to even build the experiences that we want to and um, you know I think that capacity will be built in the economy for us to do so hopefully in the next couple of years we can have these open um, so that's one of the challenges but really like from a from the producer side is you have to have an authentic experience now for people people don't want to just come and taste four wines behind a bar it's not that used to be you know the expectation mm -hmm. of wine tasting and isn't the expectation of wine tasting anymore people want to learn um, they want if you know they're choosing to spend their leisure time doing this so they want to have fun they want to um, you know be able to do something that's maybe hands-on or enjoy food while they're doing it because I mean Americans we select our activities based around our dietary needs right <laughs> and, uh, that's how we celebrate and so you have to you know, I kind of feel bad actually now because back when I was in Southern Oregon in 2010, you know, I would have been able to figure out a direct-to-consumer strategy through a tasting room with minimal investment. And now I feel bad for small producers because it's like even to play the game is in the millions. Right. Right. You know, and and so does that you know does that weed out your artisans and the people that are you know your storytellers and your innovators and the creative types that it takes to run this industry you know like i don't know i just have a, a real heart for them because like deep down that's how i feel about myself in the wine industry. even though i run this business i still feel like the reason i got into it was to be this like you know passionate winemaker mm -hmm. and i want i want this industry to be full of them but we have to make it that they can and um, so some of the Oregon State Vineyards work has actually been, you know, finding the best and brightest winemakers to work with and partner them with an estate vineyard that we own and allow them to do that craft. You know, John Murray up at, um, for our Pambrin wines and our Maison Blue wines is an excellent example of that. He's an, one of the most talented winemakers and, you know, he was having his own brand. Um, he would have been able to do well but it's like the cost of entry and the cost of capital and all this, it would have just been such a struggle. And now we can, we can take on that burden for him and he can just go make great wine. Sure. So. Is that something that's going to get worse in terms of the, you talk about the cost of entry being so high. Mm -hmm. The industry was founded by a lot of people who were, like you mentioned, like yeah. kind of the storyteller, the artist. Is it possible now to still do that? I mean, I think it's still possible. I think that you can, you know, contract fruit and maybe you can do pop-ups or you can do, you know, lists and, you know, create a personality and persona for your brand, but it's hard. It's harder. And, um, you know, for me, like land prices are really high and I look at, you know, the, uh, even the potential of everyone having a state vineyard is not even possible anymore. But then in the global wine um, conversation, Oregon looks like a steal, right? <laughs> sure. Like we have all these people coming up from California because our land prices are between, you know, fifteen and forty thousand dollars an acre bare land. And and I look at that and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm gonna have to work really hard to buy an acre of land. <laughs> so and then plant it. <laughs> it's just, it's just, that's just that's just owning it, right? Yeah.
Uh, so you're talking about sales. I'm also curious um, how marketing has changed. Even in the few years you've been doing it, it's changed, obviously, I'm assuming drastically. So how has it changed and, and what does it look like Mm-hmm. The changes will continue. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone has their own, you know, philosophies about marketing. I think, um, you know, for me, it kind of comes down to storytelling, and that's how our brand markets. It's, you know, um, we are storytellers of what we're doing, of who we're working with, and so I don't think that, you know, I don't think that has necessarily changed. But I think the customer is a very interested in story and that authentic story. That knowing that there's people behind projects, that there's real land behind projects, that these aren't like virtual wines, you know, virtual wine brands. Um, but the way in which we do is really different. So you know, we have um, you know much more emphasis on digital marketing, social media. In fact, that's usually what we're all focused on in the marketing office. Is um, are those you know, the photo, the video, you know, how you're getting the story out. Um, but, you know, like retailing in general, ha- you know, it's being disrupted right now and it's still kind of a wait and see of how, um, how that's going to shake up. Like, you know, in the future, it doesn't matter which um, page in search your wine is. Mm-hmm. Man, I hope it's not alphabetical because <laughs> Willamette Valley Vineyard is going to be at the end. I hope it's by relevance. I hope it's by, you know, consumer profiling, um, you know, quality attributes. But I do get a little bit nervous about that. If you have to make first page results on Amazon, does that mean that there's only five or ten wines that someone's going to see to make a decision? Right. At least now we have a shelf that at the local Safeway has, you know, a thousand SKUs. Right. And um, so I do get nervous about about that type of retailing and how to market there. It's a changing world in retail. Sure. I'm curious. Also, every time we go to this, like the symposium or something like that, you hear about sort of the youthening of wine buying and, and how how to appeal to millennials, how to appeal to mm-hmm. Gen X kids like me. So what what is the change? You talk about the change in terms of like the story, in terms of the authenticity of the local. Mm-hmm. So how do you reach the people? You talk about social media and, right. and digital. So how does that happen? Well, um, I actually think I have an opposing view. Okay. So I think that, like right now, I'd probably say our average customer is between 55 and 60 as far as who's really buying and supporting the Willamette Valley Vineyards anchor brand. Okay. And I kind of think, like, you know, 55 to 60-year-olds aren't going away. There's going to be a lot of people that become 50, 50 to 60, mm-hmm. 45 to 60, and so I don't put a whole lot of focus as needing to make the brand younger or bringing people up. I think that we're going to, through what we're doing um, and through how people between 40 and 65 spend their money, is wine is a natural choice and our brand really speaks to them. We are a heritage, classic, traditional brand, um, stewards of the land, very environmentally focused. And those type of values, like um, I think, I think resonate with that with those age groups, and I think can continue to resonate with those age groups. And the um, I just look at the cycle of my life, right? I'm 31, and right now it's all about you know buying a house. It's all about I just got married, and you're just focused on different things and pure leisure and socializing, right? But by the time like I'm 45 to 65 or older, when I have time to enjoy, I bet you'll be doing a lot more discretionary income activities. And so I go off of I go off of the life cycle or the you know life cycles we all have. Mm-hmm. And I think that 
I think that there are brands that should certainly cater to younger audiences. Convenience brands makes a whole lot of sense. I don't think I see many 65-year-olds drinking wine out of a can. But like for our wine, for Pinot Noir and for single vineyard Chardonnays and sparkling wines, is there really anything wrong with continuing to sell to people that are 40 and old, older? I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. It's <laughs> a good answer. I like that. Uh, we, as we were here today, there's a thousand things going on in the winery, as you mentioned. Sorry. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I'm curious about the how you tackle having that many different things going on and, and what your overall goal of having all the events here is. Mm -hmm. Well, um, tackling on a day-to-day -day basis feels like war, like battle of surviving the day really truly. Um, you know, you have to get in the mindset of um, fast pace and growth and I love that mindset but it's not for everyone and um, you know culturally too like within our company we really screen and are looking for people to add to the team that like that mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't work out you know 100% of the time um, but as like a bigger picture you know um, uh, we have a very clear strategic plan um, that's five years out and we have really clear um, plan for succession and we have really clear plans for um, you know what our business targets are for you know performance indicators and for developing and growing our staff retaining them affording them more opportunities um, we know where we want to go buy land next you know we have a lot of these things so you have to use the big picture and the 30,000 foot view to balance the you know day-to-day -day race mm -hmm. so and you have to build in time to focus on that so you know it's hard being um, you know being in this growth mode to sometimes get out of the weeds a little bit but that's where you know that's where I can provide the most value to the winery right now um, curious what wine what winery associations you're a part of in the area mm -hmm. yeah um, so we're, I'm on the board for the Willamette Valley Winery Association and we're a member there and also we're a member of the Oregon Wine Board and Oregon Wine Growers Association um, and then some of the smaller sub-appellations as we um, have our Elton Vineyard and the Eola Amity Hills and we'll soon be joining the Dundee Hills as we now have a vineyard there. We're part of the Walla Walla Wine Alliance. We're a founding member now as we're starting to get the Rocks District of Milton Freewater um, wine alliance built up so there's a lot of meetings <laughs> tell me a little about your experience with the wvwa on, on the board what what you're taking away from it what you're putting into it i'm curious uh how that balances with everything else you're doing mm -hmm. well it's been a great time to be on the willamette valley winery association board because um, with the creation of the willamette piano noir wine auction um, we now have a funding mechanism to where there are significant resources to do some of these aspirational projects that they've always dreamed to do um, but never had funds for and so you know over the past three years that auction has built up to provide you know, a great benefit for marketing projects. So there's a lot being done to drive tourism. There's a lot being done to just market Willamette Valley wines mm -hmm. nationwide. Um, I really love the work being done on some of these um, master classes for trade as well. I think they're very high quality. Um, and it's also been exciting to see Oregon Pinot Camp now merge into being under the umbrella of Willamette Valley Winery Association as I believe that was probably one of the most significant things our founders could have done in the early days to get people here. Because once you're here, 
you have an emotional connection with Oregon, you go back and you represent Oregon like you're a native, right? <laughs> and it's amazing to see the alum from Oregon Pinot Camp and when you go into the market and sell the wines, how um, significant of an experience that was for them. So I love that there's a connection there. Um, we're also tackling some important issues with 100% labeling um, for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and conjunctive labeling to put Willamette Valley on all the bottles. Um, and there's been research to show how that can improve, um, you know, with Sonoma County doing it before us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are kind of hot topics right now. We'll see how they pan out. But it's nice to, um, to learn and have a voice and, um, you know, try to do what's best for the membership. Can you explain those a little bit more for those who might not know, like me? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, so they were two initiatives that were brought forth by um, Ken Wright and David Adelsheim. And um, the first one we'll talk on is 100% varietal labeling. So that would be anything labeled as Willamette Valley Pinot Noir would be 100%. And same with Chardonnay. And um, right now, Oregon already has the highest standards in the industry in the new world um, with 90%. And so this would be moving it from 90 to 100. And, um, you know, I see pros and cons about that. I don't think it's 100% perfect, um, but I do see, you know, their point of view of industry leadership and truth in labeling has always been a key for Oregon. It, we have very, very high standards already. Um, so that's one that we're discussing now and um, is in the works this summer to go into a legislative session in the fall. Um, and then the other one um, is conjunctive labeling, and that would be to preserve the Willamette Valley AVA as a quality designation. So with six sub-appellations and more coming online, you can easily put um, Yamhill Carlton on your label and maybe not include Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. um, but what they're saying is that's allow that's made it so that the Willamette Valley Appalachian use maybe isn't considered in as high regard mm -hmm. as a sub-appellation. So you would it would require you to put Willamette Valley if you were using a sub-appellation as well. Um, you know, there's give and take on that too. Is sometimes I really do believe that the more specific you can get with your sourcing, you know, we make wines from single blocks, single vineyards, single AVAs, you know, mm -hmm. Aviation or Appalachian cuvées. Um, I think it's important to be that specific with your sourcing and if, and to describe it that way. Um, but there's you know, um, but putting the Willamette Valley Appalachian maybe does preserve the quality that it's seen out there more. Um, you know, they're definitely things that I still don't have 100% opinions on. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you a good board member there. You're still, you're still being convinced. Right. I'm curious about the location here. It's, you have such a huge site, um, mm -hmm. and yet you're not really near anybody else. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, sort of pros and cons of your location. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when Jim found this site back in 1981, um, you know, he was looking at for land that was between 500 and 700 feet elevation because that was the elevation of the Grand Cru Vineyards in Burgundy. And he went into it with the mindset of what worked there must work here. And so he found a site that had that and was supported by Jory in Nakaya soil and he wanted to work with, you know, water retentive clay-based soils. And so 
the decision making back in the 80s because there was no winery clusters um, this was not see, you know this was not a bad decision nope. you know <laughs> um, but then as we saw you know the wine industry grow up um, in Dundee Newburgh McMinnville you know obviously it's uh, it's hard to be out of that cluster now as when consumers are making travel decisions and when media is going to wine country they're driving straight on 99 and they can hit as many wineries as they can fit in and weeks right mm -hmm. and so that was important for us in the location of our one of our Oregon State Vineyards projects was um, you know we wanted to do a sparkling wine facility and um, felt that this one vineyard location that I found in Dundee would really support that and then it gave us what we've been working you know 30 years to do which is to have neighbors and to, <laughs> to be right around everyone. So we're really excited, looking forward to that. But then there's things, you know, we've been operating down here in our bubble. Like for example, I get so much done because I don't have, you know, a ton of visitors bothering me as far as, you know, barrel salesmen and um, uh, et cetera. Um, so they'll be good and bad. And, you know, things that have served us really well here is our proximity on I-5. So we catch a lot of out-of-state tourists that want an Oregon wine experience but, you know, aren't going that far west. Um, we also are so close to Salem, which is a really growing community and very loyal to us. Um, you know, we, we are kind of the Salem winery and it served us so well. We're the most visited tasting room in Oregon, not even being in wine country. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm curious um, what it's like being a woman in the Oregon wine industry. Hmm. You know, I've, I've been in the wine industry during times where it was not unusual at all. The first book I read about wine was Susan Sokolwasser's book, and I loved reading how her best time was spent on a tractor and doing the vineyard work. and. You know, I've um, always been, um, I've always admired the Ponzi sisters for their work in the industry. And um, one time I was at a board meeting for the Willamette Valley Winery Association and they only saw my head and David Alsine put his hand on my shoulder and was like, um, you know, Maria, it's so nice to see you. <laughs> and so maybe I'm a third sister. But, uh, and you know, there's lots of women winemakers here. Um, I think too, our connection with France and how many uh, women winemakers are represented there. It's always been, um, it's, I've never felt in the minority. I think the side of the business that has a lot of catching up to do is the distribution side. And when you look at the industry as a whole, you know, they say that five to 10% women uh, in distribution and that is, um, that's wrong to me. And I think that there needs to be intentional, deliberate ways to support women and their, their voices and their development in those organizations. Um, because I believe that your company and your makeup of your employees should represent who you're serving. And we're trying to do that on our board of directors now. Uh, you know, they say women are, you know, make 60 to 70% of the wine purchasing decisions of the household. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, that's, we represent our fair share as the consumers and the purchases of this. So why don't, you know, our distributors, why don't our, um, you know, our wineries, but here we're almost 60% women. Um, women have really been allowed to be empowered and developed here because we're so performance oriented. And I think that just in general, women are very results driven and um, you know, also very relational, but um, you know, they kind of feel like they have a lot to prove and this is a great winery to come and prove it. Sure. So. 
I'm also curious, in your specific instance, uh, you've had a lot of success at a very young age. As you mentioned, you're on 31, and you've already had your own winery, wine label, and you know, you're second in command at one of the biggest wineries in the state. I'm curious if there's been any challenges with that, with having so much success sort of so quickly. Mm, I mean, I'm trying to think of any specific, specific examples that have been challenging. I think in general, um, you know, maybe I haven't been taken seriously, but I wouldn't know it. <laughs> but you know, it's like being blonde, being pretty bubbly, um, probably talking more than I should. That's probably all gotten me in trouble. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I think, yeah, th there's, a, there's a lot of relationships that run pretty deep that are pretty hard to crack and get into. Um, there's a lot of times when, you know, you're probably, you know, not, you know, maybe wel very welcomed at the table. But in general, I think that I've just tried to work really hard at being credible. Um, you know, I went back and did a lot of wine education, whether it's taking classes at UC Davis or, um, at, you know, doing the WSET and a lot of wine certifications to try to have that formal knowledge to fall back on that built my confidence. Mm -hmm. It was never for anyone else, but it was to build my confidence so that when I'm in a you know, tasting group with a lot of winemakers that I felt, you know, that I was bringing something to contribute to. And um, on the business side, I've always tried to be part of a lot of peer groups and, um, you know, develop and help improve others and kind of rise together. So there, right now, there's a great, great group of us that are all kind of around the same age that are taking over family businesses or, you know, coming into second generational um, opportunities or even just um, you know succession planning and that's great to have other people that are kind of going through the same thing and have similar challenges. I'm curious now that your, your future is kind of inextricably, tie, inextricably tied to Willamette Valley Vineyards so I'm curious as you look into that future you're talking earlier 30-40 years mm -hmm. um, what do you see for yourself and mm -hmm. what do you hope and see for the, for the facility? Yeah um, you know Jim says that right now is the most exciting time in, the, in his time in the industry which is great to be a part of and I think he feels that way because, you know, back in the early days, you were, um, you were worried every step along the way of if you were going to survive and advance, you know, your business. These are small businesses. And now we have, you know, a level of maturity and establishment and um, land holdings and um, talented people that we can work with that we're, we're in a very secure place. And anytime you meet that human need of security, is kind of then when you can get creative, right? And you can, you don't have the stress and the pressure of survival, you have creation mode and you have self-realization and actualization coming. And so I look at a lot of our new projects with the Oregon Estate Vineyards. I look at a lot of what we're trying to do in building a destination for wine enthusiast travelers and tourists. Um, and I also look at our our initiative of taking the Oregon story on the road. We have a new project that's doing that. Um, probably one of the first experiences from an Oregon winery to go outside of the state. And I look at those and I think that, you know, these are lifelong projects. <laughs> you know, you don't plant a vineyard in the Rocks District of Milton Freewater to prove um, and to reach success in three years. Right. I mean, these are, these are, you know, when I'm 50, 60, 70 years old, I'm probably going to feel like that was a good decision. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> you know, it takes that long. It takes that long to establish, um, you know, great vineyard sites and quality winemaking consistently and, um, 
high scores and take care of your people. Mm -hmm. um, but I kind of think that this is just the beginning and we're launching from here. Do you have any, not necessarily number, but like a specific goal in mind? Is there something you'd like to see during your, during your time here? My big, hairy, audacious goal? Exactly, let's hear it. Well, I want to make a 100-point wine here in Oregon. That's my biggest goal. It's a good goal. I write it on everything as the start of what I want to do. Like, I'm making these decisions today to make a 100-point wine. That's the quality lens you have to look through if that, you know, you're making these. Because they become longer-term goals when you make them with that goal in mind. Um, other things, you know, I'd love to, um, you know, we make wine in Southern Oregon through our Griffin Creek brand. Um, we make wine in Walla Walla. We make wine here in the Willamette Valley. But I'd like to make wine, you know, in a lot more regions that will just become available to us now. You know, there's the Snake River AVA. That's kind of interesting. I know nothing about it. Uh, Columbia Gorge. There's Umpqua Valley. You know, there's a lot of places that I think some great things can happen. Coastal ranges that will open up. Um, so I think just continuing to explore and learn and um, just set it up well for the next generation too. So make sure that the people that come here into Oregon, those of us around here, continue to treat each other really well. To keep that collaborative spirit is a big deal. Um, you know, and make sure that we have clean air, clean water, you know, fertile land to grow. This is an agricultural product. We just can't pick it up and move. Sure. As you mentioned that, what do you see in the future for the Oregon wine industry at large? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, with so many brands here, it's going to get competitive and it's already a bloodbath out in distribution. So I don't think things are getting easier. Um, so I think it's going to take our best ideas and our hardest work um, to, you know, keep carving our place, um, keep proving it and just don't rest on your laurels. And I think, I mean, we have such great people here in this industry um, that will do it. I think that we're probably, this is the most exciting state to be in right now in all of wine. And um, don't take that for granted. Keep, you know, keep it there. It took, I mean, what was it? Last year was 50 years for Oregon Pinot Noir. Is that right? And, uh, you know, look where we are in just 50 years. Like, but in 50 years from now, after all this foundational work, if we keep pushing this hard, you know, we could have, we could have double the plantings. We could, you know, be making wine to 100-point quality consistently. It's exciting. What are some of the obstacles to that? What are some of the challenges you see down the road? Um, I mean, certainly global warming is a challenge. I'm, you know, very concerned about um, that. And are we making good decisions setting up the vineyards for success in the future? Because the decisions we make now they come to light, you know, 10, 20 years from now. So clonal material, rootstock, um, what's going to happen with water, mm -hmm. you know, very relevant. Um, other things, you know, for challenges for Oregon, you know, it's, it's hard right now to see that the people that it takes to make our industry run and the people that really make it possible for us to do what we do in this room you know, they aren't making living wages. It's very challenging to see that people that work in the tasting room, you know, can't afford homes any, anywhere around where we are. They can't maybe even afford new tires for their car. Same with the vineyard. You know, so what are we going to do to provide enough value in our companies and our businesses to take care of this workforce? Because these are the people that are the face of our brands. Um, they do the hardest work. And 
you know, we have to keep them here and we have to keep them here in ways that they can afford to live. And so, I, you know, I'm starting to think about, do we need to provide employee housing? Do we need to, um, you know, what is it that we need to, to be attractive, but not just attractive to get good talent, is how can we make this their career? Mm -hmm. You know, like there can be a career um, sharing stories with people in the, in the winery, in the tasting room, but we have to make it to where we're strong enough financially to, you know, re to compensate mm -hmm. these people. They do really hard work. Sure. So that's, that's something that I really want to figure out. I think we've done a good job, you know, setting up things like Salud to take care of healthcare. So what do we need to do to look after our people in more facets of survival? Sure. Do you see the growth that we're going through right now being something that sustains for a while longer in terms of number of wineries, number of vineyards? Or do you see kind of an end in sight where there will be more consolidation or something along those lines? Yeah, I think that this is a tough time in the industry as a lot of people, you know, got into it as hobbyists, um, farmers and winemakers, and they don't have maybe brands that would have probably a way to, I mean, value mm -hmm. brand, right? They have a place, they have pretty facilities, but do they have a brand that if someone were to come in and buy it, does the brand live on without the founder, or without the couple working in the tasting room? There's a lot of these type of business owners um, right now in the industry. And I just don't know um, if there is much hope for that other than if there's a lot of people making money to come in and then buy these mm -hmm. operations. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe there is. Um, but I think that there's probably a lot of consolidation on the future as, you know, what other options, you know, do some of these winery owners have to you know, be able to afford retirement because a lot of them have been putting everything they earn back into their businesses. You know, um, Jim lived in a single wide trailer for most of his you know, creation of William Valley Vineyards and upgraded to a double wide and just four years ago built a home. You know, that's a founder that all his money went back into this winery to get us to where we are now. And, um, and a lot of them have these type of stories. Mm -hmm. So how do they provide for their families and provide for themselves in their you know, retirement years if they don't do something like this? I hope that there's other options like partnering with Willamette Valley Vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what advice would you have for someone starting off in the wine industry today? It could be any level of the wine industry, but what mm -hmm. advice would you give them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say that um, if you're selecting a job, the best advice I have is find people or an area that best support your learning. Um, moving to Southern Oregon was the best decision I made because I went and worked for a winery called Troon Vineyard and did all of their direct sales and general managed their winery and I was 22. And I got an incredible opportunity to go and really work with the owners there and get a lot of learning opportunity. And they, I mean, they took a risk hiring me. I had you know, um, nothing to back up um, anything down there. And, but that was just an opportunity. So I worked with someone that was like, um, you know, she has capability, she, she wants it. She has hunger, she has drive. And you know, find people that believe in you that way because the mentorship quality is what will take you the furthest and that will get you the networks you need and the, you know, where you want to go. The other thing is, um, 
you know, it's, uh, I'd say, don't be afraid to wear a lot of hats in the beginning and then find where your passion is. Like, you know, truth be told, I don't want to be working 100 hours at Harvest anymore. <laughs> like, I feel too old for that. My winemakers are amazing. But, you know, I, I did it. I put in my time, you know, I put in some time, I learned it, so now I can help support them the best. But um, I wanted to move to a, a little different side where I was building, you know, uh, wineries and brands and uh, working, you know, on aspects of the business as well. Um, but I'm sure glad that, you know, I've had to clean out a few t tanks and presses so I have empathy. <laughs> <laughs> I was really cold. <laughs> I drank a lot of beer and ate a lot of pizza. <laughs> That's, that's, that's the whole plan right there, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's how I got compensated as well. <laughs> so that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything else I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to talk about at the end here? No. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and your answers and your candor. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over